Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Tuesday, August 4th, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, what we're going to do today is to stare down the fire-breathing mouth of the dragon known as the Take Machine, throw our bodies on its gears, and hope that our blood will serve as adequate lubrication. And what we're going to do is accomplish this by... Yep, takes. (laughs) We're going to examine these takes from wherever they come from, try to treat them with good faith, keep our discussions in good faith, make sure that we're considering a variety of angles, sources, and opinions, and do our best to keep you adequately informed. Yeah, we know that we are only human. Um, On the last episode... Uh, I fixed it in editing, but I uh, cheekily said, uh, we aren't human, (laughs) Um, but we are human. We are not perfect. We don't know everything. And we can acknowledge that other viewpoints are valid other than our own, where there is no ivory tower. But anyway, hey, Evan. Hey, Joe. What do you want to talk about today? Today, I want to talk about French literature. No, I I don't actually read a ton of French literature, but it is going to be relevant in our discussion of a concept known as Rastignac's Dilemma. So Rastignac is a character from Balzac's La Comédie des Humains. Eugène de Rastignac is his full name, and his character is sort of an ambitious social climber within the French period of time in which the the book tastes takes place or i guess technically it's a series of books like i said not a french literature expert bear with me he you know is always trying to advance his own station and there's another character within the work known as vautrin and he has an interesting conversation with rastignac he poses to him a question he says why work hard to advance your station Instead, just focusing on marrying well, he pitches to Rastignac the idea of devoting his time not to his own enterprise or to hard work that will advance his station, but rather to put all of his energies into finding a wealthy woman to marry and marrying her essentially for her wealth and inheritance. And this is the dilemma that we're talking about, Rastignac's dilemma, the decision in a highly unequal society as French society was in the time between attempting to make something for yourself, which sounds appealing, but often does not end up being lucrative, and attempting to just leech off of an established source of wealth and income. Now, this has been applied to modern economic times, as I'm sure you can imagine. And it is brought up by the economist Thomas Piketty in his book Capital in the 21st Century, where he talks about the role that global capital plays in determining wealth growth for individuals across a global society. And the way that Piketty describes it is when you when you want to figure out which way to come down on Rastignac's dilemma, is it better to work to build something of your own, or is it better just to marry well? He gives us a little formula, and that's R greater than G 
equals inequality, where R is the rate of return on capital and G is the growth in wages, the growth of the general economy. And this is the situation that we are experiencing right now. As long as the rate of return on capital exceeds the actual growth of the economy, inequality will, by definition, be divergent. We will not see inequalities contract. They will expand. So one thing that I think is really interesting to keep in mind about this is that as it was true during the time of Balzac and is true today, this system where capital is able to generate more wealth faster than actual work has been true for almost every period of human history. In fact, when you look on a global scale, the only time where economic growth has outpaced the rate of return on capital has been roughly between 1945 and the 1970s, post-World War II, because in the war, a lot of wealth was destroyed and there was a lot of economic growth that was dedicated just to rebuilding what was destroyed by the war. And so this is when you saw some of the widespread prosperity for groups that weren't already otherwise marginalized by society. And this is when we had a lot of our economic thinking born. We kind of assumed that this was the way that capitalism worked, that Everyone just did better and better as time went on. We didn't have to worry about economic equality, that a lot of these systems would just take care of themselves, when in reality, that period of time was a global anomaly. And this is just something, actually, the reason why I decided to talk about this was because I woke up in the middle of the night thinking about it, not an exaggeration or not a story device here, I actually woke up and was thinking about Rastignac's dilemma, because I think that it's a really great way to start conversations about divergent economic inequality and about the stories we tell ourselves about our economy and about the true role of labor versus capital in determining who holds wealth and who holds power. And what does it say? It says that, you know, the, 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 the mythology that it's hardworking people who end up getting ahead is bunk, and it's been bunk for most of history. Inheritance almost always is a better way to gain financial security than working for something yourself. That's not a liberal talking point. That is hard data collected by economists such as Thomas Piketty. And I think that that kind of spills over into a lot of social programs. We kind of believe that because our system will take care of people who work for it, we don't have to take care of people who fall through the cracks. But when we understand that that's not true, I think it compels us to adopt more generous and more inclusive social policy. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot about wealth inequality and like, you know, and in this example, it's, you know, if you want to become wealthy, but, you know, sometimes I, 
I think, you know, I don't even know if the conversation I want to have is about making sure that people become can become wealthy. It's just more so that they can have enough, <laughs> you know, just uh, not that they necessarily need to become wealthy. It's just that, uh, you know, that they have enough. But yeah, if you uh, you want to take a positive fist version of this, turn your labor into capital. Ooh. I've got three responses. <laughs> Response number one, there's so much that we could talk about about economic inequality. And you know, Joe, and many of our listeners probably know that it's kind of the main subject of research interest for me. Response number two is that what is considered enough is always socially constructed and it's always set by the top end. So even if we're not necessarily trying to get everyone to be wealthy, paying attention to what the top end looks like sets the level for what everyone else is trying to achieve. And third and finally, I think that as long as R is greater than G, equality, inequality will be divergent, and that inequality intrinsically brings its own social ills, regardless of whether or not people have enough to survive. You are worse off at the poverty line of an unequal society than you are at the poverty line of a more equal society. So all, all other things to consider. And that will be a topic for another day. It truly will. This was just, uh, I, I just want to uh, begin to let my thoughts on inequality be heard on the show. There's a million episodes that could potentially spring from this. And listeners, I, I thank you for listening to episode 37. And as we continue to push forward in our journey of intellectual discovery together. Remember this, remember Rastignac's dilemma as a way to frame how we think about who gets what in society and whether or not it is earned. Yeah. Uh, so Joe. Yeah. Hey, Evan. <laughs> what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about deposit schemes. We scheming and up in here. Yeah, I know. The, the the word scheme really threw me here, and I, I'm excited to see where this goes. Well, it, it, it ain't too complicated of a subject. So if you've ever been uh, wildly bored and been looking at your uh, soda cans or uh, soda bottles, you'll often see on there there is a little uh, little bit of typing that says, M-I-H-I, sometimes C-T, five cents. And what those markers mean is that in those states, particularly Michigan is the one I know the most about, is that you can take that bottle or can and go to the state, however that manifests itself, and you'll get five cents back. And these are called deposit schemes, where whenever you buy a bottle of soda, can of soda, what have you, you also pay for a deposit on the bottle. It's kind of like a lot of us have shopped at Aldi. And we all know that when you go and shop at Aldi, you have to make sure to bring a quarter with you in order to put in the shopping cart and able to use it. 
the shopping carts at Aldi are a version of a deposit scheme. Now, what is the end result of a deposit scheme? So at Aldi, what you do with, you put the quarter into the cart. And the reason why you put the quarter in the cart, Aldi never gets the quarter. Nobody, you get the quarter back. But what you got to do is bring the cart back to the corral, plug it in, and then you're able to get your quarter back. That's why they have you do the quarter. They don't have to pay for anybody to go out and get the carts. So you just bring your own cart back for you to get your quarter back. The same idea is with these bottle deposit schemes, is that if you buy a drink or anything that has a deposit on it, but it's mostly drinks, then you pay, in those states, you pay the five cents when you buy the beverage, and then you get the five cents back when you return the bottle to uh, a lot of times they have these receptacles where you just put in qualifying cans and bottles and it will give you money straight out for it. So I have been thinking about this for a while in terms of the kind of recycling single-use plastics crisis that we kind of have going on in this. I was watching these videos about plastic recycling, which I know is super, uh, super interesting, but that's what we're here for. And it seems like one of the biggest issues right now is facing recycling is this idea of uh, getting it sorted correctly or getting it back at all. Um, So... A lot of our bottles and cans, even if there is recycling in place, one thing that often happens is that they just end up in the regular trash and they don't get recycled. And the main hurdle to getting the recyclables out of that is because sorting trash is a particularly difficult enterprise. And then even further, when you get into just recycling in general, let's say you have the you know, the green bin that you just throw everything into. Well, even then, that recycling has to be sorted at some point as well, which is another major hurdle. So one thing these bottle deposit schemes can have is that it ensures that the products come back and that they can be easily sorted. Like, people have a reason to hold on to these bottles and cans because of the deposit, and they have a reason to turn them in because of the of the deposit. They get the deposit back. And yet it e- even provides incentive to go and find trashed bottles and cans wherever you can. So my proposal is that what if we had a bottle and can deposit scheme that was a little bit more lucrative? Like it's five cents in, I believe, Michigan. What if we made it a quarter or 50 cents or even a dollar? That would be real incentive to turn in all of these different plastics and cans to make sure that they end up getting recycled. And, you know, it's a lot easier to, uh, you know, sort them when it comes into like uh, the machines that they use to recycle or, uh, you know, give back these deposits. You know, you just kind of put it in there and it. You know, the machine can kind of recognize what it is and, you know, can sort it from there. Whereas, you know, just throwing a whole heap of them into a big pile, it's a lot harder harder to sort. So if we made a deposit scheme 
for all, you know, single use plastic bottles, all cans, all, you know, glass bottles. But then also maybe, I don't know, it could even be for like plastic bags or, you know, other single use plastics that, you know, you will want to return and get recycled. Then we could have a lot more compliance with recycling and make it so that that plastic and other materials are better able to be recycled, which during it right now, due to current sorting limitations and, you know, contamination between different products, it's sometimes hard to get full recycling out of all these materials. So what if we had a dollar deposit on, you know, every uh, can and bottle? You would for sure turn those in if you knew that you were getting a dollar back and that you sure as shit would pick up a bottle that's on the side of the road because, you know, you could get a dollar for it. Um, so this is a uh, this is a small plan that could possibly help recycling and help uh, plastic waste and pollution out in the world. So I'm going to go pro-con on this. Pro of this sort of line of reasoning is that I think it's an interesting proposal to up the value on it. But con is that I think that a lot of it is going to depend on how accessible you make the deposit centers because I don't necessarily agree with the assertion that you're guaranteed, you'll definitely get more returns on cans if it's a dollar instead of a nickel, but I don't know if even someone like me would want to go through that hassle. Someone who really values simplicity. So these deposit machines, even in Michigan, um, they're just at like convenience stores and the grocery store. And they're fully autonomous machines where you just stick the cans and bottles in and it will, you know, kind of read it for a second and then decide, you know, give you the refund or not um, based on whether it's a qualified product or not. They're real simple to use. Um, You just put stuff in there and you get some money back. And it, it pays out cash. Yep. It pays out cash. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have to like go to the local county board and the, you know have the assessor come out and look at it and be like, I don't know if that's a real can. I'm like, what? It's a fucking can. And but nope, it's uh it's a real easy process to do. Um and don't have to physically interact with anybody. It's just a machine. And you put stuff in it and you get money out. So here's the real scheme is so i used to live in toledo ohio very close to the michigan border Mm -hmm. you buy the beverages in ohio where you're not paying the deposit you take them back up to michigan you get the deposit that you didn't pay for in the first yeah that that does happen um there are um certain law enforcement that actually do look into that um, but the, of course, this would be something that would be best if it was universal all across the country. But, um, you know, an individual state can only do so much. But that would be fraud. But um, not 
not the worst fraud in the world. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, if they're if they're autonomous machines, then yeah, I guess that's kind of kind of what it is. Yeah, I mean, I would guess that local officials would have like a kind of idea on you know how many how many deposits were paid and how many deposits were paid back out to the people. And if they start seeing a discrepancy, they're like, Hey, is somebody coming in here? Someone, uh, yeah. And of course, anybody who does that sort of scheme, they aren't just going to come in and bring like 10 cans from out of state and be like, Oh, got my, my 50 cents. I mean, under the current Michigan law, they bring lots of cans. Uh, for it to mean anything and that's a little bit easier to catch or put a stop to i mean theoretically but i also get the sense that in the current status quo there is a very low return rate if you remember when we had mike Manetta on with wolfpack he was telling a story about how one state i believe it was connecticut had so much extra money sitting around from their deposit scheme that they could basically use that pot to start publicly funding elections. So, well, may- that's maybe all, not that's as also detectable. because, well, because that 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 scheme is it's five cents. Um, that's that's an amount that enough people are able to write off, and that five cent figure comes from a long time ago when. Soda may have cost around five cents or something comparable to that. But now that prices have gone up, the deposit amount has never increased. So it's not worth it to anybody now to go. I mean, not as worth it to a lot of people to go and get a five cent deposit. But my proposal is to make it something in the range that would be more worthwhile for people to go and actually turn stuff in for an amount that you know most people would think would actually be worth it instead of just a like almost a small tax on beverages yeah and that was my if you recall that's what i kind of mentioned as the pro is that um by increasing the financial incentive you'll obviously increase participation yeah so I don't know if it would be the, the, I mean, this isn't going to solve everything. This isn't going to solve the single use plastic issue, but it could be something or it could not be, but, um, I think it could be. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Evan, what's our main topic today? Well, Joe, we're going to talk a little bit about agribusiness. Essentially, there have become fewer and fewer large companies controlling more and more of our food production and distribution in this country, and that is causing big problems for small family farmers. And so what we're going to kind of look at is going to be very simple. We're going to look at the state of the problem and some of the causes of what's going on. We're going to examine the effects that it's having on the industry and then we're going to hopefully try to see what's being done about it and what some potential solutions could be all right so evan since you've done more research about this what's happening now well as i mentioned 
the agribusiness industry has consolidated to only a few major national countries which are engaging in monopolistic practices across the nation within the food industries that they represent. And this allows them to leverage their power in ways that coerce smaller players within the field to agree to terms and contracts which are unfavorable for a number of reasons. One of the root causes of why this is happening is the push towards industry consolidation and regional monopolies. So for example, just to look at one type of food production, chicken, we can find that five companies, Tyson, Pilgrims, Sanderson Farms, Cook Foods, and Purdue control approximately 99% of chicken production within the United States. And that is mind-blowing to me, that five companies can essentially dominate the entire national market for chicken. So what this means is that Local growers have no choice because what I mean when I say that these companies control the business is that they're the ones who supply the stock of chickens. They're the ones that provide the chicken feed. They're the ones that then buy the chickens once they've been raised. And they're the ones who process the chickens and ship them off to the grocery store, restaurants, whoever is the end buyer. But that key step of growing is still done largely on family farms across the country. And because there are essentially no alternatives, and again, often these companies don't compete with them compete with each other in the same market, if you are offered a bad contract by Tyson, you don't have anyone else to sell your chickens to, and you really are forced with the decision of not working or working under these bad conditions. So uh, one I, way, go ahead. Yeah, I want to clarify something. Like these companies compete when they sell products to you, but there isn't when these uh, companies come up and set up shop somewhere. They're not competing with each other for the business of the people who are growing. And that's the issue is that uh, one, uh, you know, one processor sets up shop somewhere or takes over the processing of an area. And then they basically exclusively run the processing in that area. Uh, other people don't step in to compete with them because they're so large. And yes. Good they, point. Good distinction. Yeah. So these, as I mentioned, this allows these large companies to impose really restrictive contracts on local growers. And this affects everything down to how the growers are paid. And right now, the way that chicken farmers specifically are paid is atrocious. You might think that it's simple. You grow chicken and then... The company pays you a set price per pound of chicken, but it is so much more convoluted than that. The way that chicken farmers are paid in the United States is actually known as the tournament system. So let's say a processor in an area has 11 farmers that all send their chickens to this processor. 
they do not all get paid the same. Their batches of chickens are evaluated on a number of different different metrics, such as how much they weigh, how fast they're growing, what other types of resources went into growing the chickens, and then the people who the algorithm ranks as the top chicken farmers are paid thousands of dollars more than the people who are deemed to be at the lower end of the system. So on the surface, it sounds like a system in which people who are doing the right thing, producing good quality chicken, are rewarded. But not even that is as simple and straightforward because the methodology they use to rank the farmers within the tournament system is opaque and can be manipulated. Because remember, these companies are acting in a way that they control every other step of the process. So if they send a bad batch of chickens, they can penalize the growers for having the initial stock, which was provided by the same production company, crap out. They can be penalized for something absolutely right. out of their I, control. I think we need to go into a bit of more of these practices that are happening and not so much the bad stuff. Like... So you would think that, you know, the way most things are produced out in the world, like a company makes something and they figure, you know, all the parts out of it of their own, or maybe they, maybe they do work with the end user to make a product that they want. But normally the person who produces the product have like an uh, automaticity about how they go about it and they get to decide of what the end product is in these contracts with Um, these chicken sellers and then also you know various other forms of livestock the whole process is basically dictated and paid for by the chicken company where the farmers are almost just the land and labor that they uh, can provide so these chicken you know these chicken processors will give them the specific chickens to grow. They'll give them the specific food to grow. They'll manage or uh, uh, mandate what type of environments that they need to live in. That you know They mandate all the process. It's not like the chicken farmers have their own process for getting chickens and feeding them and bringing them. And then you know they try to make whatever product that they have, then, then they sell that product. It's more so that these processors are leveraging that if people are going to sell chickens to them, they have to, they're going to go under everything that Purdue or whoever, uh, however they dictate it with all of their own in-house decided uh, process. Absolutely. And this can even come at a great personal cost to the farmers. So as Joe said, Part of the control that the companies have over the farmers is that they can dictate the conditions under which the chickens are grown. So if Sanderson Farms says you need to install a brand new heating unit for your chicken coop at a cost of $80,000, you have to abide by that or Sanderson will not enter into a contract with you. And again, Because of the regional monopoly angle, you can't sell to anyone else within your area, most likely. 
So farmers are then forced to have expensive upgrades, whether or not they feel it's necessary. And often the people who are profiting from the forced upgrades are the same companies. So this allows these chicken companies to sell expensive equipment at their own terms to farmers and then also dictate everything about the growing process and even the price paid on the back end. And so this is creating a very difficult system for in which farmers are unable to profit, essentially. And we'll get more into the mind-boggling extent to which they're not able to profit in a second. I think maybe the other largest cause of this entire situation is just a lack of transparency. The food industry lobby is extraordinarily strong, and they will do a lot to make sure that people don't learn about their practices. One way they do this is through something called ag-gag laws, and these are laws passed on a state level which make it a crime to photograph slaughterhouses, essentially. They don't want the public to see the conditions within the factory farms, and this means that the public doesn't have a lot of knowledge about what's going on, and when people don't know what's going on, they can't get mad and they can't cause a problem about it and attempt to change it. There's a large national lobbying group called the National Chicken Council. I know a lot of this is about chicken, but it, it it's applicable to a number of different food industry subgroups. But the National Chicken Council is a lobbying group which works to essentially intimidate farmers into falling in line. They engage in anti-competitive practices and attempt to squeeze small growers who attempt to act independently out of the business, all while also trying to maintain a political influence. Another issue that I see is that the USDA labeling that gets attached to products is essentially meaningless. If you look at any type of positive term that can be attached to food labeling, I can almost guarantee you that it means nothing. Saying that food is free-range, all-natural, hormone-free, cage-free, humanely raised, the bar to claim these things on officially sanctioned packaging is so ridiculously low that it really means nothing at all. And so all of these factors together work to obscure the reality of food production from the average consumer. Yeah, it's... uh. It's quite a thing. I, I I can't help but wonder how this situation got into itself. Um, the agriculture industry across pretty much every country is a pretty highly regulated industry because it's a pretty tough industry, especially if you're dealing with... Uh, crops or livestock, which I mean, it's most, I mean, those are the growers. Those are the, you know, the, that's the bottom of the pyramid of the whole food ecosystem. 
And because, you know, there can be issues with uh, crops some years or, you know, the, you know, disease within certain crops or animals. And there has to be protections against that and making sure that there's enough for everybody. But what seem and, and then also in the United States, food is extraordinarily cheap. Um, as a percentage of income, United States citizens spend very little compared to the rest of the world. I think on average, the United States spends between it may be 20, you know, but somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of our income on food. Whereas even in other developed rich nations, that could be as high as 30 or 40 percent. Um, so we have extraordinarily cheap food. And, you know, that for whatever reason, however that came out, I think that makes it very hard to be profitable. And through engineering and all this, uh, you know, technological breakthrough, I think there are a lot of uh, a lot of economies of scale that got us to the point where these companies got real big but now they're they're not acting in competition with each other within the grower market and they're really mandating the terms and it's this is not what this is a market failure and you know in the piece that's kind of spurred this uh written by Ezra Klein that we both read it it seems like right now that um, there are a whole lot of externalities to the food production cycle mm -hmm. that just aren't being accounted for at all. And that's kind of artificially bringing down the price of things where if we were to fully account for making sure that most farmers were actually uh, paid a decent wage um, you know what was the stat like something 70 percent or around 70 percent of farmers live at or below the poverty line and that's uh that's that's not great and then also you know all the some of the other side effects of factory farming that are just also real bad um those aren't getting paid for as well and you know, surprisingly, or not a ton of people know this, but the there has always been a large influence of the federal government in agricultural policy and agriculture in general in the United States. Um, hell, even in the uh, in the fifties and sixties, the United States put a whole lot of money into you know agricultural sciences so that we could make sure that our country was fed as kind of like a fuck you to the Russians who weren't able to keep their people fed. And since, you know, who knows, this almost seems like a way that since the cold war ended, that has happened multiple times in multiple markets that we just kind of assume everything works itself out. And now that we don't have the constant threat of the Soviet Union, we don't have, uh, you know, someone to respond to someone. There isn't someone making arguments that were bad because of certain things. And we just go along and keep doing those bad things. So, yeah, there's a lot going on in the food market. Yeah. So I want to actually loop back to 
your statement on externalities, because I think that's actually a really great way to segue into talking about the effects of these negative agribusiness practices. And the first way that we feel the negative effects is the impact. Can I talk about externalities first? Yeah, sure. I mean, I wasn't going to talk. Yeah, go ahead. Just a broad overview of what an externality is. Um, So in economics, the term externality is something that results from an activity that isn't accounted for in the price of an activity. So one, uh, there are positive and negative externalities, um, but most of them a lot of times end up being negative. (laughs) So a negative externality is like a factory dumping their pollution into a river. And because of that, people aren't able to fish in that river anymore because all the fish die. That is a negative externality. Um, That's something that the company isn't paying for that is creating uh, costs to society that is going unpaid for. That's that's essentially what an externality is there. Just as a uh, just so I can complete my thought, there is one classic example of positive externalities, and that is if you are like a grower of crops or anything and you have bees If you get bees, bees uh, help fertilize everybody's crops in the area, not just yours. So those have positive externalities. So get bees. (laughs) But anyway, talk about the the externalities of agribusiness as it stands today. Yeah. So uh, obviously everything that Joe said was absolutely right. But also if you just want to think of externalities as just other effects that come about from certain actions, that's a really great shortcut. So the biggest negative effect that we see is on farmers. They are truly by and large struggling to get by. I know Joe talked about the poverty rates But what really stood out to me is that in the most recent data that we have of 2018, the median annual farm income was negative $1,840. I couldn't believe that. The average farm in the United States loses money every year. And the reason why is because the contracts in which they are trapped forces them to make expensive upgrades and their pay is inconsistent based on the whimsy of the tournament system. So this is ultimately financed by debt. Farmers within most industries are going deeper and deeper into debt every year. And Living under the weight of debt, some farmers carry millions of dollars of debt, is a huge stress and it degrades the quality of life for these people who are oftentimes third, fourth generation farmers who have worked hard their entire lives, who have a familial history of doing this work, and it has never been this hard. So farmers are being squeezed And if you have a shred of empathy, I hope that that means something to you. Well, and it's not all, you know, there isn't like a 
plight of farmers making bad decisions or risky, you know, bets or whatever. Uh, the the food landscape has really changed over the last 30 years, and it's not been to the benefit of the farmer. I mean, there's been a lot of technological breakthrough, but it's also very expensive and food prices continue to be very low. And um, yeah, it's it's tough out there for them. Yeah. And then the other big negative effect or negative externality is on the environment in a number of different ways. Joe mentioned as his hypothetical idea, uh, a factory that produces pollution that go ahead that goes ahead and degrades water quality but large scale factory farming does that as well let's say you have a bunch of animals in a very small enclosed space and oftentimes i know for example factory farming of chickens allows less than 1 square foot of space per bird in the average farm these animals still produce the poop. regular volume of waste. Yeah, poop. They they poop. And that poop has to go somewhere. And more often than not, it ends up being dumped into a local water supply, which lowers water quality and hurts everyone in the community. Well, and also sometimes some of these big operations, I think there was a, an example in one of the Carolinas where uh, they they essentially had a poop runoff and it was like near a uh, a black community and mm. it basically made the neighborhood unlivable because there was this big poop pond right next to each other uh, you know the 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 waste of you know thousands of pigs were right next door and who wants to live next to that nobody and if if these amount of pigs had been in, you know, kind of a more natural environment, you know, they would have a whole lot of land over which to roam around in and, you know, do their business in. But when you have all these animals in a concentrated spot, you your manners for getting rid of them, it, you know, you're, you're most likely going to dump it all in one spot. You're not going to go out to the land and just disperse it like it normally would be so it's uh it's a real issue of what to do mm -hmm. with that yeah and i think that that is also an interesting point that you bring up about the racial dynamic to some of these decisions we make there's actually a term environmental racism for the ways in which we often stick these negative externalities on the backs of communities of color and force them to deal with living next to the shitty lake and having that disproportionately affect non-white people. Not so, the shitty lake, the shit lake. The, the lake of shit. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I can deal with a shitty lake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Any Anyone who's been by Lake Erie knows how to deal with a shitty lake, that's for sure. Uh... It just, it's not, it's not a good lake. It's just not. Sorry. <laughs> it, you know, if it tried more, it could be. <laughs> yeah. Like around Halloween, I want to go to Lake Erie. Otherwise, you know, Lake Michigan's a pretty solid lake. 
Okay. Go ahead, Joe. Rank rank your your favorite Great Lakes in order. Go for um, it. You know, I got to be pretty partial to Michigan. I live five miles away from it, or maybe less. Um, and that's it. All right. Um, the last thing that I want to bring up in terms of these negative effects is the effects that factory farming has on the animals themselves. So I'm by no means a vegetarian or a vegan. I don't have a moral objection to eating animals, but the animals that I consume, I hope that they don't have to suffer in the life that they do have. And unfortunately, the practices that these large industrial agriculture, agribusiness conglomerates demand often completely ignores the role that animal suffering plays in factory farming. So animals are selectively bred to get as big as they can, as fast as they can, because this produces the best return on investment. However, animals that gain a lot of weight very rapidly end up having joint problems and heart problems and suffer from very spontaneous and very painful deaths at times and very painful lives. Not having space to roam around while you are also rapidly increasing in mass is physically uncomfortable and causes pain to these animals that is very real and tangible. I I am giggling, but I'm thinking, oh, so what we're all doing in quarantine. Well, yes. Uh, Edit in (laughs) a little. Limited confined space, rapidly growing in size. Put put in a rim shot. Uh, You know, just for the fuck of it. I'm going to put in uh, Dean Howard there. Okay, great. Howard Dean. Howard Let's Dean. Do it. Howard Dean, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, after that, that, that is more on brand. Yeah, after that non sequitur. Um, <laughs> the animal welfare. I, that makes it seem like we're not doing it. I'm not putting it in. So, yeah, it's like I said, I don't think that you have to be a vegetarian or a vegan to express a vested interest in not having animals suffer within the lives that they do have. And I think that the current system completely ignores that fact and has created more cruelty to animals within the last 20 to 30 years than farming used to entail. Well, yeah, I remember one time I was watching an episode. I I, for, I think it was of Bizarre Foods, and I remember the host Andrew Zimmern was like, "Oh yeah, back in the day, you know, you know what we called grass fed, pasture raised, uh, you know, free range beef. We just called it beef because that's <laughs> what it was. And, you know, basically, you know, all food was, you know, all the you know what we call hippy dippy requirements, but." You know, I I am of two minds. One, I do believe that these factory farming conditions are often abhorrent and not great. Um, you know, I I normally tend to be someone who you know I'm like you know you know animals are animals. Let's focus on people because I don't know we're people. But a lot of these factory farming situations are just so abhorrent that. You know, even I'm like, hey, whoa, that ain't super great. But 
these these conditions come about because well one we've through technology and engineering but also because of a desire for cheaper goods at an ever increasing quantity like you know if we were to raise all of the animals that we currently consume through the traditional methods or you know even a just a you know, don't have to throw it all out, just even a looser quantity. I don't know if we would have all the space to, you know, raise all the animals that we consume in a year. But, you know, it's still got to feed the people. And there are ways, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are ways to do it without the the intense cruelty, cruelty of it all right now. Um, you know, even I'm sure a good number of practices could be, you know, kept while making, you know, curbing the most excessive, cruel elements of it. But, you know, it, it's just something I wonder about because we have a whole lot of people to feed. And unless we're going to start willingly uh accepting higher prices or greater subsidization of these markets then um yeah it, it, i mean food prices are going to have to go up so um, this is something that representative rokana talks about because there definitely is this desire to make sure that food prices stay low but we've kind of traded every other dimension of this issue for the lower food prices. And I'm not sure that personally that's a good trade. But the problem is that due to what we talked about earlier with the lack of transparency, consumers don't really have all the information they need to decide if that's the trade-off that they want to make. So all they see is the price and they say, well, this must be good. And... Really, I think weighing the externalities would shift the calculus for a number of consumers. Right. With these, you know, with these ag gag laws, the only time you really hear about these things are when like an edgy documentary comes out. And that's not going to be for everybody. You know, mm-hmm. that's not Although, on the nightly NBC news. Yeah. Supersize Me 2, Morgan Spurlock made a sequel, Supersize Me 2, Holy Chicken, and that's where uh, I turn to for some of this research, and that's on Amazon Prime if anyone is interested. Um, very like interesting I said, look edgy. at agribusiness. Yeah, no, that's that's why I bring it up is because it's that's exactly what you described, like uh, <laughs> you know a flippant guy who wants to break the rules and show the show the shit. Yeah, we, we don't get like the honest farmer who's trying to do everything right and, you know, just wants to make some damn chickens and but he has to do all this stuff. Um, and, you know, it's it's and, you know, it's not even the national media, you know, it's just, you know, I think there was a John Oliver bit about chickens at one point, the chicken industry and, you know. Hell, the the farmers were prevented from about from talking about these things in like agricultural council meetings and, you know, just normal, you know, just forums that they, you know, where farmers and agricultural business people exist, 
you know, we don't necessarily need to know about it. They are trying to fix it themselves, but they can't even talk about it there under threat of losing their entire livelihood because even, you know, if they talk, then, you know, with these regional monopolies, they don't, they're not going to have someone else to sell to. Exactly. Um, you know, they'll be blocked out from selling to Tyson and, you know, if they can't sell to Tyson and they lose their, (laughs) their already tenuous livelihood is gone. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough game. Um, and I don't know, you know, it seems like from, (coughs) from the area that we grow up, grew up at. You know, it's not as much livestock going on. It's more so like, you know, corn farming, which is a, you know, for at least for a time was a very, very heavily subsidized industry. Um, So there kind of sometimes gets the idea of the wealthy farmer, which some do exist. But there are a good number of farmers who don't live that life. Um and aren't in as heavily of subsidized uh, crops or products. So, yeah, it's uh, it begs for some change. I feel like some, you know, it just uh, it just feels like sometimes our society just doesn't rise to the challenges, or just decides not. No, it's not a challenge. <laughs> yeah, or, especially, well, I mean, I'm not going to try to be the guy who's like, ah, oh, everything today is shit, but it does kind of feel like that's a very of the moment feeling. Yeah, it's, uh, I just want to be able to rise to the moment, you know, <laughs> when issues arise. Yeah. But. And thankfully, there are some people who are attempting to rise to the moment, So Senator Cory Booker has proposed a bill called the Farm Reform System Act, and this has a number of planks which will hopefully change the way that farming happens within the United States. So one of the biggest things he's trying to do is to phase out concentrated animal feeding operations. By 2040, Cory Booker wants to have no more factory farms in the United States. This should help with some of the issues regarding the animal welfare and also in terms of pollution and should hopefully just begin to make the industry healthier overall. The next aspect of his plan (laughs) is to shift liability to the conglomerates as opposed to the family farmers. So right now, if anything goes wrong or if someone eventually does want to come knocking to ask for essentially uh, reparations to make whole things that the negative externalities of pollution have harmed them, the law is structured so that These will all fall on the backs of the farmers. Cory Booker and those who have co-sponsored his bill want to shift the liability framework so that the conglomerates, the Tysons, the Purdue's, the Smithfields are now responsible for these types of negative externalities. The idea is that if these companies really had to pay for all of the shitty things that are happening, the practices will change much more rapidly. 
Right, because you you may ask yourself, hey, why doesn't, you know, if if they're paying all these farmers all these, you know, bad wages and it's really tough to do it, why don't these chicken processors just do it themselves? And I would guess that there may be some sort of antitrust issue that would uh, result from that, Some probably some clear decision that was handed down in 1873. But there there is also the kind of contractor issue where it, you know it's kind of like uber like <laughs> you know it, it, bear with me uber doesn't have any full-fledged employees and uber doesn't well for the most part in mm-hmm. the main part of their business and they also don't own any cars what they do is they have a service and they Everyone who drives for Uber is a contractor. They aren't an employee. They are contracting a service to Uber and they are performing it based on whatever metrics. Similar deal with these Tysons and these Purdue's and, you know, these big conglomerates that control or, you know, have these regional monopolies on these, uh, you know, these livestock growers is that. They basically dictate everything, but they own nothing. And that is kind of shielding them from all the responsibility. Like Uber doesn't pay for maintenance on any of their cars. Uber doesn't pay any medical bills for any of the drivers. You know, they just pay the drivers and something kind of small at that as well. And it's similar with the farmers. They just they don't. You know, they may own the chickens, they may give the chickens to them, but then they're also dictating at what, you know, price they'll buy them back at based on, you know, other things. And it's it's just putting all the onus on the farmer and taking as much of it off of the uh, processor as possible, as if this was a normal relationship under normal circumstances (laughs) instead of the producer dictating everything. Yeah. So then to kind of extend the Uber metaphor, the bill would attempt to rectify things such as Uber not having to pay or contribute to maintenance or health just so that it motivates the companies who ultimately profit to align their financial incentives with incentives that are best for the employees who are being squeezed. A big part of the implementation of the farm system Farm Reform System Act is that it establishes a $100 billion fund to help local farmers transition away from the current model. And so these essentially direct cash payments that would be available to farmers would be invaluable in helping them keep their heads above water to get out of immediate debt and maybe begin to have some sort of autonomy and self-determination that their fathers and grandfathers enjoyed. Right. And I want to emphasize again, farmers are not out there making, I mean, they're essentially a small business and they're not out there making irresponsible business decisions. It's just things cost a whole lot of money in the farming business. And it just so happens that, you know, whatever small cut that ends up being profit is just what they live on. Um, You know, maintaining large swaths of land, buying the seed, putting it in the ground. I mean, the most 
the craziest thing that they spend money on is oftentimes, I mean, for the feed growers, a combine. <laughs> and, you know, that's an expensive piece of tech that also has, you know, is pretty not monopolized, but there aren't a ton of players and it's something everybody needs. And they end up, you know, buying one a year because, you know, it's an expensive piece of technology, but it gets worn out and all these other things. And then, you know, these livestock growers, you know, they have the investment in their facilities, but, you know, with ever greater demands on them, it's, it gets tougher and tougher to make a profit on it. Um, Mm -hmm. so especially when they have to keep investing in it, you know, it's not like they have a piece of land with a, you know, a few shacks on it and then, uh, you know, they can just grow pigs or, or, you know, have pigs live there for forever. (laughs) Um, no, it's a continual improvement that these big processors are asking for. Yeah. And something I guess that I want to stress that's quasi related to that is, that yeah not only are farmers not really just making bad decisions and ruining their own fates their their decisions are being limited by more powerful companies and as joe mentioned earlier how our food is produced and what happens to the people who produce it is of national importance you know we have a very strong food supply chain right now but many of the people who are growing livestock are extraordinarily vulnerable. And when the coronavirus is sending shockwaves through existing supply chains, those vulnerabilities are exposed. Farms have to shutter their doors, which jeopardizes our long-term food security. So if if not for compassion, at least care about (laughs) these issues for the, the health of our society and our food supply. Right. It's, uh, yeah, you definitely want to go to your farmer's market. It's a teeny tiny little thing. I don't do it enough, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, because, uh, you know, and it's just also there, you know, like these factory farm stuff, you know, that's like, you know, the cheapest way and it makes the cheapest product, but you know, some of these, uh, you know, I think a big reason why the chicken market is as bad as it is is because there isn't like a demand for premium chicken. Mm-hmm. Like in the beef market, there's there's a very strong premium beef market um, that people will willingly pay more money for better beef. Yeah, nobody's um, nobody's trying to buy Kobe chicken. Right. I mean, you may get, quote, organic chicken, and that's about it you know there there you're you aren't people aren't paying a whole lot of money for an extra grade higher meat you know uh, chicken or or something like that um and you know similar goes to pork i mean i know there are people who are you know buying better products but it's not as um expected you know i think not the, as many aficionados well right and you know on you know, you can see it in like ground beef. I don't think, you know, people are, you know, it, within the beef market, people are a little bit more likely to just take, you know, whatever is the cheapest ground beef. And you see that at the stores, you know, you see the, you know, like the shitty log that is sitting there. 
you know, pre-tubed up. But yeah. you you could you could buy, you know, premium or, you know, you could go to the counter and I'm sure you could ask for fresh ground beef, but you know, not as many people are doing that. Um, I'm not. So, I I get the tubes. Hey. But um yeah, So there's one more aspect of the Farm Reform System Act that I want to talk about because I think it gets back into something that Joe was saying about how, you know, there there have been laws in the past and it, it's kind of come up. But the Farm Reform System Act seeks to reinforce the existing Packers and Stockyards Act, which was a law passed in 1921 and is still on the books, but it's not well enforced right now, that essentially allows the government greater regulatory oversight in how these agribusinesses are run because in the 1920s we were concerned about our food supply and the presidential office executed a basically an audit of our food system and found that the agribusinesses of the time were engaged in non-competitive practices and this was alarming and still is alarming and so by reinforcing the packers and stockyards act what we could do is give small farmers and family farmers governmental recourse when they get bad contracts when the tournament system fucks them over they can go to the government and ask for intervention which i think might be the single most important way to fix this in the status quo a tournament system i i I feel like something like that should just be outlawed i mean i feel like you should (laughs) absolutely i feel like you should just you know you should pay for the quality of each chicken that you sell um not like the quality of your chickens but also versus ted down the streets chickens yeah like that's just and it's and seriously, the system is kind of crazy. There's a there's a farmer who works with Morgan Spurlock and he shows Morgan the sort of invoice that he gets at the end, which shows the results of the tournament system. And this guy produced the biggest average chickens and somehow the system ranked him last. Nice. And it's not explained why, <laughs> you know, so it's just... It's a way to, through some complicated pseudoscientific, pseudo-statistical way, deny farmers the full pay that they are likely entitled to. I mean, Hallie, you just need some transparency with that. Like, you know, gambling companies have to produce the odds of what it is to win on, you know, well, on some machines, you have to be able to look up, you know, like, what the odds are of winning and um uh you know <laughs> you shouldn't be able to know the formula that you're getting paid by yeah you know it shouldn't be a secret mm-hmm. yeah it absolutely should and to the extent that obviously like they send them an invoice and there's statistics on it but clearly it doesn't always add up and actually there was a lawsuit in kentucky recently regarding the tournament system and actually i'm bad host i didn't look up to see how that was resolved but uh there's your homework listeners find out what the result of that lawsuit was email me podcast at adequatelyinformed.com and tell me yeah (laughs) so uh all right let's get to farming 
let's uh let's get out our overalls and and yeah get get to farming you said it you said, you said let's it uh let's uh let's uh wake up at dawn go to sleep when the sun goes down which is the exact opposite of my life right now <laughs> uh it sounds romantic <laughs> in all honesty though maybe it's a little bit corny or or naive to say but farmers are really hard working people and they very literally feed all of us so it's important to have a vested interest in their ability to live dignified lives yeah they ain't asking for uh for lamborghini uh tractors they're uh <laughs> Which are actually a thing. Really? Um, Lamborghini was originally a tractor company. Oh, interesting. And uh, I think the Lamborghini guy, he uh, he was saw some feud with Ferrari and then was like, I'm going to make my own car. Jeez, anyway, how many feuds did Ferrari have? Uh, they're contentious. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're you've watched The Sopranos. Everything's contentious. <laughs> just because they're Italians? Yeah. <laughs> they have a so lot of pride I, in what they do. So that's how Ford got roped into it, too? Yeah, I haven't watched that movie. But, well, that was... I, I I know the story of that one, and that's, like, in a very specific context. I mean, Ferrari gets in a lot of beefs because for a good long while, they were, like, the, you know, the premier fast car makers, in the world they had like the best tech and all that stuff or they were really the only ones making them <laughs> so until they, uh, christian bale fucked them over yeah but anyway uh anyway they're where they're not asking for luxury they're just asking for a fair shake um and i think farmers deserve that <laughs> at the very least i, I agree so I think that about uh, brings us to the end. Would you say so, Evan? Um, we have an end segment. We do. Yeah, Joe's watching The Sopranos. Joe, talk uh, about The Sopranos. Um, it's good. Do you like uh, Do you like uh, Silvio? I I I think he's I think he's my favorite of that kind of class of character in the show. Um, you know the, the Tony henchman. Yeah, yeah, uh, he he definitely beats out Paulie. I, oh yeah, uh, but I can't I can't get over his hair, just <laughs> Silvio's hair. Just wait. So we're gonna talk about hair and your your problems with Silvio's hair. Paulie's hey, got the fucking wing tips. I I know he has the wing tips, but you know it. it Silvio's every time I look at it, he looks like a character from Lazy Town with a big <laughs> exaggerated wig. You know, that's what I'm getting at. Did you know that Steven Van Zant was on the short list to play Tony? He made the final cut for the Tony Soprano editions. <laughs> oh, man. I'm what a, I, what a different show it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This was on Reddit the other day, and it was vi- purely by coincidence. It was a video of james gandolfini on sesame street talking about what he makes him scared and it was just weird to think of tony soprano 
on Sesame Street talking about what makes him scared. Oh, yeah. Well, and like a vulnerable that, human moment. Oh, yeah. I think that uh, James Gandolfini really relished the opportunity to do stuff like that. He knew that he was a big, physically imposing guy. And obviously in the scenes where Tony gets upset and angry, it's a ferocious intensity that he brings. But he never wanted to... He never wanted people to think that that was really him. You know, he always mm-hmm. tried to make people laugh on set. He tried to form personal relationships with people. I know there's a story about how Robert Eiler, who played his son, AJ, he had never been to a Broadway show. And when James Gandolfini learned that, he surprised him with tickets and took him to Broadway just just to do it. And uh-huh. so him being on Sesame Street, I, I know it is like an incongruous image and I bet Reddit can have a lot of fun with that. But I think that. Oh, basically all the comments were basically what you said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> J- James Gandolfini on Sesame Street is much truer to his essence than James Gandolfini on The Sopranos, as as paradoxical as that is. I I'm I didn't really I definitely didn't watch the show at the time of Gandolfini's death in I want to say 2013 ish, yep. but at this point he's one of the celebrities that I miss the most. I I just kind of feel like I wish we had him right now, and yeah. I've kind of gone through this weird stage of mourning his death seven years after the fact. Yeah. I, I have come to realize that kind of uh, body type aesthetic wise, I think the best I can shoot for is uh, James Gandolfini and or Tony Soprano. I think that's uh, <laughs> the, the highest heights. It's a good one. But uh, hey, yeah. Tony, he's still he fucked. He fucked a yeah. lot. Of, oh, yeah. yeah so he he, uh, he had no issues. Although I think it was more about like the power than his physical attractiveness. Oh yeah. Know? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. He, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the, the chutzpah, the, the, the charisma, the power. Yeah. The red bloodedness I mean, of it all. Yeah. 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 Fucking hothead. Oh man. I would, uh, you know, I watch this and I'm like, man, I want to go to therapy like seemingly five times a week. What else does he do? He like just goes around, does some mob shit, goes to therapy and has he like eats. baked ziti. <laughs> you're, for, you're forgetting. Yeah. His, his favorite activity eating. Hey, that's my favorite activity. <laughs> so you get a nice um, veal parm at Cetriel's. You know what? I, I haven't, but I, I, I would love one. I would. Love, I wouldn't. Uh, I, I I don't want to eat veal. I've had it before. Pretty good. So uh, <laughs> so we're gonna go into veal. This is yeah. We, we end our we end our episode on factory farming with Joe's endorsement of veal. Yeah. Oh, we came a long way. It's not the worst environments anymore. Practices have come <laughs> a long way. But anyway, uh, Sopranos good. I'm watching it now. Um, somewhere around season three really like it um although i i i think uh i love the amount of kind of like late 90s early 2000s corniness that is in it as well 
How do like, you mean? Like hell, even just like every time the graphics come up, um, like the just uh, for like the intro and outro, it just says just this kind of poorly computer animated The Sopranos with a weird shadow on it, and the uh, and the music in it as well feels a little corny. What about uh, the music? Hold on, hold on. Because, like, the graphics, that's not something I really pay attention to. I'm willing to defer to you. But what's wrong with the music? Just, you know, from that, 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 like, late 90s, early 2000s kind of corny-ass pop music that is sometimes in the background. But it's, like, diegetic. It's, it's like... uh, it's what the characters would be listening to. I know it's what the, the characters would be listening to, and it's fucking corny. I, don't I think know. that I music like from that music. time. Well, it's not that I don't like pop music. It's just from the stuff from that time just feels super corny. I don't know. To me. I, 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 I don't know. I'm telling you, you're corny, Evan. Listen to I'm Out of Love by... Anastasia and tell me that's corny. It's a great song. It's a jam. Well, I I don't know if I was making that argument about that song. <laughs> I just try to pick like an indicative song of that that type of aesthetic that I'm defending. Yeah. And the one that I I don't know. It just feels corny. corny. Well, that is not a word I've ever heard used to describe the Sopranos before. Well, it it took someone who was viewing it for the first time, what, 13 years after it started running and 20 after it started or 13 after it ended, 20 after it started. Yeah, that's that's my perspective. Well, but I only watched it two years ago. Has, has it changed that much that the perspectives yes. are yes, it has. different? Yes, it has. You needed the new eyes in 2020. I wasn't I wasn't four year old Evan watching the season one as it debuted. I mean, it's corny, but anyway, it's a small part, not not anything in the forefront. I would say like 19 parts. Nice. One part corny. But anyway, anyway, I think that brings us to a close. I think it does. Well, and we would like to thank uh, you for listening. As always, we would like to thank Anthony Hish for the music again, as always. And uh, send us any emails, thoughts, ideas, what have you at podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. And anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed. <laughs>